Today is Palm Sunday. It's a day in which we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Now, the phrase triumphal entry, we don't tend to use that phrase, uh, but we still have examples of triumphal entry-like things in today's culture. I think, for example, of a victorious sports team returning back to their city after winning a world championship. There's a ticker tape parade and people line the streets and a parade goes by and everybody is cheering and celebrating. We don't call it that, but it's a triumphal entry. It's a triumphant return to their home city after being victorious uh, in their sports arenas. We think about it today when it comes to the president of the United States. Uh, when he enters into a formal situation or comes into a room, usually the procedure is people stand out of respect and they sing or play hail to the chief. And it's a triumphal entry of sorts, a person of honor, uh, a person who is coming into a situation and we play that music to celebrate it. Yeah, so I can almost hear the John Williams score when you think about uh, the triumphal entry because Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem has some of the same things that you might see in scenes like this. He's riding a donkey. Uh, crowds have lined the way and they're cheering. They're laying down palm branches and their cloaks as a, a, a respect and honor. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it has many of the elements of a triumphal entry. However, when in my mind I think about the throne room scene in Star Wars, and I compare that to the passages that describe the triumphal entry in the Bible, I think, but would never say out loud, the stories in the Bible seem to pale in comparison. Like I read the triumphal entry stories and that's the image I've got in my mind. The music playing, everybody standing at attention, uh, the sort of signs of honor and respect and Jesus marching triumphantly into Jerusalem. But when you read the stories and the accounts that the gospel writers give us, it doesn't quite sound that way. That donkey that he's riding on, it's a borrowed donkey, he doesn't even own it. He's got to get a donkey from somebody else to ride on. In Matthew's account, it says that when he comes into the city, most of the people don't know who he is. It's like they all run over to join the celebration and they whisper to one another, by the way, why are we here? <laughs> and even when the people who do know tell the people who don't know, they simply say, oh, it's a prophet. Now, Jesus is a prophet, but it's far more, far more than that. But oh, it's a prophet, it's Jesus from Nazareth. Oh, okay, great. In Luke's gospel, while the triumphal entry is happening, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, start yelling at Jesus, telling him to rebuke his disciples that they are offering praise that he's unworthy of. And in Luke's gospel, we're told that as Jesus enters the city, he's not smiling, he's weeping. He's weeping over all the lost people. And he's weeping over the fact that so many of the people who are there lining the streets will reject him and don't understand who he is. In John's gospel, he throws in the detail that even Jesus' own disciples don't really get what's going on. 
And worse yet, in John's gospel, Jesus himself tells us at that moment at Palm Sunday, these crowds who are here, they're going to be back five days from now, and they're going to be cheering something even louder and more vociferously. They're going to be cheering for me to be crucified. And John ends the account of the triumphal entry with two quotes from Isaiah about how people won't see and won't understand. And when you read the accounts carefully, if you have a scene from Star Wars in mind, they pale in comparison and you think to yourself, triumphal entry, what's so triumphant about this? How could this possibly be Jesus the Lord of the universe coming to the capital city of Israel. This should be the triumph of all triumphs, yet you read the account and it didn't work out that way. And the question is, what's going on? Does George Lucas know how to do a better triumphant entry than God does? (laughs) To answer the question, we're going to have to follow John's lead. And John says, Isaiah gives you the answer. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to look back at the first passage that John quotes in connection with Palm Sunday, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 6. So please, if you will, take a Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. It's page 557 in the church Bibles. 557, Isaiah 6. When we began our series in the book of Isaiah, we didn't begin in Isaiah 1. We began in Isaiah 6 and then went back to Isaiah 1. And the reason we began in Isaiah 6 is this is the most important chapter in the book. And it's the most important chapter because it gives us a vision of God and the rest of the book is the playing out of that vision. So let's remind ourselves of the vision that opens the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Let me begin reading in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah begins with this massive vision of God. And it says that God is seated on a throne, but what becomes clear is the throne is not on earth. The throne is in heaven. Earth is simply God's footstool. So big, so powerful, so massive is this God that Isaiah says, I saw him dominating the planet. And the very tip of the hem of his robe, the little corner, filled the biggest uh, building in Israel, the temple. And these giant creatures, these seraphim, so big they have six wings, some to cover their eyes, their feet, and two to fly with. They have to fly all the way up into the heavens to be even up near him. And they're crying out, holy, 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 and their voice 
shakes the foundations of the earth. And Isaiah has this vision of this glorious, massive, powerful, earth-creating, earth-shaking, universe-filling God. And he is overwhelmed. And there, little tiny Isaiah, all the way down on the earth in the middle of this cosmic scene. And God says, who will go and tell the people of this vision? Who will share with them this glorious vision? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And the book of Isaiah is Isaiah proclaiming this vision of this glorious, righteous, powerful, loving, strong God who is mighty to save. Now in Isaiah 6, which John quotes, God says, you're going to go and you're going to tell them what you saw. And they're not going to believe you. And you think, who wouldn't see this? Who couldn't see this massive, glorious, great God? Well, Isaiah goes and he proclaims the vision of a powerful, good, redemptive God who is mighty to save. And that's what we've been studying together. We've been looking at passages in Isaiah that talk about this God. Turn over with me just to one of them in Isaiah 40. This is the message that this universe-filling God gives to Isaiah to proclaim. Isaiah 40, verse 10. God says, go tell them, Isaiah, that see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a what? A mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. Isaiah says, this God is coming with a mighty arm. The strength and the power of the God we saw in Isaiah 6 is coming. And he's going to bear his mighty arm for all to see. Turn over to Isaiah 41. Also verse 10. Tom led us through this just a couple of weeks ago. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my what? Righteous right hand. This is the message of Isaiah. This glorious God, massive in scope, is going to reach down and grab hold of the hands of those who are in trouble with his mighty arm. He's going to pick us up and hold us up. What great news. Turn over to Isaiah 52. Also, verse 10. Isaiah 52, verse 10. The Lord will lay bare his what? His holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. 
And the visual is this massive God from Isaiah 6 who fills the universe, whose robe fills the, the biggest building in Israel, whose glory is so great that the foundations of the earth are shaken. Isaiah says there's going to come a day when he rolls up his sleeve and with his massive, mighty arm, he's going to come and rescue not just Jewish people, the whole earth. And you think, yes, amen. This is fantastic. What great news. This is the good news of Isaiah, that God's not left us in our sin and our darkness and confusion and in all the trouble that's going on in this world. The creator of this world who towers over this world is going to reach down into this world with his mighty right arm. And he's going to take hold of people and he's going to rescue them. And you think, yeah, let's go. This is good stuff. And then we keep reading and we get to the second verse that John quotes in connection with the triumphal entry. Start with me in chapter 52, verse 13. So verse 10, he's going to roll up his sleeves and we're going to see the arm. Verse 13, see, my servant will act wisely He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told were not told they will see, what they have not heard they will understand. For who has believed our message, and to whom has the what? Arm of the Lord been revealed. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And you read this passage, and you think, what? This is completely unexpected. The message of Isaiah, this glorious God from Isaiah 6, with his mighty right arm is going to reach down into this earth and grab hold of people and to rescue people. And surprise, surprise, we come to find out, verse 13, his arm is a person. Now, that's not that surprising in the sense of God is spirit. He doesn't actually physically have an arm. So the language was always metaphor, metaphorical for the idea that God would reach down. It's not some gigantic hand. Well, that makes sense. He's going to use somebody who's going to be the expression of his power and his glory. And so the shocking thing is not that the arm of the Lord is a person. The shocking thing is what kind of person it is. Now, this is a prophecy about Jesus. But listen to what is said about Jesus, like verse 2 of chapter 53. He grew up before him, Jesus grew up before God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. 
Essentially what this is saying is Jesus, God's servant, the arm of the Lord is going to be like a weed. A shoot, that's the little sucker that grows out of the tree stump. That's the little thing that you, if you're a gardener, you prune. And if a gardener came across Jesus, this passage is saying he'd cut him off. He would think, Ugh, we got to get rid of that. That's a weed that's messing up the garden. And we're told that he had no beauty to attract us to him. You understand what that means? That means that Jesus was not, he's not physically attractive. He's not the one with the charismatic personality. He doesn't probably have a beautiful singing voice. There wasn't anything about him that people go, yeah, that guy is special. He was born into poverty in a small country village to an unwed mother. He grew up surrounded by rumors of his mom's supposed unfaithfulness. He was a manual laborer. He didn't have a high official position. The king of the country into which he was born tried to kill him. He was unheard of when he comes back to his hometown in Nazareth. People here, there's some great prophet these days in Israel who's doing all sorts of wonderful things. And then people in Nazareth are just like every other village. They're like, we can't wait to meet this guy. And then they hear word, he's coming. He's going to come to Nazareth. They're like, whoa. Everybody turns out for the show. And there he comes in and like, who's this guy? Who is it? Wait a minute. That's Jesus. That's the carpenter's son. And not one person in the whole town says, I knew it. I knew there was something special about that guy. No. They all say, this cannot be that guy. I remember him in high school. He wasn't anything special. That's exactly what Isaiah says is going to happen, and it's exactly what happens. And here's the crazy thing. It says, like one from whom people hide their faces. Did you know Jesus growing up? Yeah, I mean, that guy was weird. Like they're embarrassed. This is not the person you would expect. And Isaiah's point is, verse one, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The crazy thing is this mighty, massive God who fills the universe, who has all power and all wisdom and all knowledge, who is going to come with his mighty right arm, is going to reach down and save people in all the earth. He rolls up his sleeve and the whole world, kings included, look at that arm and go, that's the arm? That's it? That little tiny puny arm? That's the arm of this massive God? What a letdown. What a disappointment. That's his arm? It's like a weed. We would pull it up. And people are embarrassed. They want to hide their faces. This is why at the triumphal entry, supposedly Jesus' most glorious moment during his earthly ministry... This is why he's on a borrowed donkey. This is why nobody actually really knows who he is when he comes in and then everybody's like, who is this guy again? Why are we here celebrating? And the very best answer is, ah, he's a prophet. He's kind of a religious person. 
This is why the Pharisees take a look at Jesus and go, you do not deserve glory and praise. You're a little skinny, weak arm. This is why at his supposedly most triumphal moment, he's weeping. Because who's believed the message? God pulled up his sleeve. We saw the arm of the Lord. And the whole city said, that's it? That's coming to rescue us? No, thank you. This is why five days after that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, all those people are going to vote unanimously, vociferously, and loudly for that arm to get pruned. It's ugly. It messes up the garden. But what Isaiah foretells and what nobody understood was that arm was far more powerful than anyone could have ever possibly imagined. Isaiah gives us a clue in chapter 53, verse 12. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Another way we could say it is, see, my servant will obey. And what we come to recognize is, while the whole world was looking for an arm that was full of beauty and strength and power and popularity that was attractive, that was charismatic, that everybody wanted to be around, that always said the right thing in the right way and everybody loved what that arm said. God said, that's not real strength. The greatest thing that Jesus will do, which is far more powerful than anyone could ever imagine, he will obey. Now think for a moment. What's the most important quality of an arm? We have arms. What's the most important quality when you look at your arm? Now, some may think, well, muscle. How much strength does your arm have? Some may think shapeliness. How beautiful does your arm look? Some may think the quality of the skin or the health of the arm. But in reality, the most important attribute of an arm Will it do what the brain tells it to do? Amen. Am I wrong? Amen. I remember going to visit a former bodybuilder who had ALS. And the horror and the pain of watching this man suffer because although his brain was sending signals to his arm, his arm wouldn't respond. And it didn't matter how big and strong his arm was. An arm that will not respond to the signals that the brain sends is useless. And so God says, you're all looking for the wrong thing. What every single person failed to understand is that Jesus' power and his glory was far greater than anybody could have imagined. 
Now, why is it so important that Jesus as the arm of the Lord be willing to obey? Well, think about this with me for a moment, will you? Imagine that it's summer, and today, this morning when I got up, it was harder to imagine. (laughs) But imagine that it's summer, let's say it's July, and you're out with friends or family or whatever, and you're at the big lake, you're at Lake Michigan. And imagine that you, uh, and for me in my picture, I've got my kids out there and they're sort of swimming in their lake. They're like, dad, come on in and swim. Like, okay, and you go step in, like, ooh, that's colder than I expected it was gonna be. But you wade in and you get through there to your, your legs and finally it's up to your waist. And have you ever had this experience? You're like, all right, oh, well, I can't walk any further. And you wanna go further, you wanna keep walking out there, but as soon as that cold water hits whatever this is right here, your belly button, you're like involuntarily recoil. Have you had this experience? And have you said to yourself, I just gotta dive in, I just gotta go under. Like if I just dive in, it will be fine. Like this slow is not gonna work, I should just dive in, it'll be cold, but I'm gonna get, it'll get better, I'll just do it. And then you're like, okay, here I go. And then nothing happens. You ever had that happen? You're like, all right, now this time I'm gonna go. And nothing happens. In our family, like some people count to three, We count to like 48. I'm like, I have got to give myself as much time as possible to psych myself up to do this. Now imagine that what you're diving into is not cold water, but sin and death. Imagine that you are this giant massive God and the world that you've created all the way down there is freezing cold with disobedience and with darkness and with death. You're gonna need an arm that's willing to plunge down into the darkness and grab hold of those who are lost and are dying and experience death itself. And God says, I need somebody who's willing to do that. And every single person did or would do what you and I would do, we immediately recoil. The moment our hand would have hit that water, we would have pulled it back out. And Jesus, very God of very God, when God says, who's willing to reach into the death and pull them out? Jesus said, here am I, send me. And when God says, you're going into a world of darkness, it's gonna hurt. There's gonna be pain. At your very best moment, the crowds are gonna actually be against you. Your disciples won't understand. The Pharisees are gonna be antagonizing you. People aren't going to see, they're not gonna get it. The same people at your triumphal entry are gonna turn right around and demand that you be crucified. You're gonna be spit upon, you're gonna be mocked, you're gonna be betrayed, you're gonna be rejected, and I will turn my back on you while you bear the sins of the whole world. And Jesus, out of a love that none of us will ever truly grasp, said, here am I, send me. And God says, I've got to reach into hell. I've got to reach into death and pull them out. And Jesus says, here am I, send me. And what God says is, not one of you understood the strength and the love that it took to do that. 
And every single one of us, when God rolled up his sleeve, said, that's the arm. And God said, this arm is more powerful than anything you will ever imagine. Because my servant will obey. So what do we do with this teaching? Three things I'd like you to think about. Number one, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, if you're here and as you're going through life, you're experiencing the chill of the cold, the difficulty, the trouble, the pit, you may be in that pit because of your mistakes. You may be in that pit in part because of other people's mistakes as well. Here's the important thing for you. How are you going to get out of the pit? The God who created you, who loves you, who made this world, has reached down his arm in Jesus. And this morning, he is extending it to you. Now, you may think to yourself, I'm going to climb out of this pit. And you may be working as hard as you can to get out of that pit. And if you think you're going to make it, I can't do anything except let you fail. But if you've slipped back down into the pit enough times, if you've run out of energy, if you've run out of ideas, if you're not able to figure out how to deal with the alcohol, if you're not able to deal with the pornography, the addictions to technology, the troubles in the, in the marriage, the troubles in money, all of those things, if you're simply existing in the pit and you're like, someone help me, I'm here to tell you, the arm that's reached down to you, the arm of this God who created you and loves you, it's Jesus. And you may think, yeah, no, I'm going to wait for a different arm. I don't really like this arm. This arm says some stuff I don't really like. This arm can be tough to believe in. This arm asks me to do some things I don't really want to do. If you're waiting for another arm to come down and reach out to you, there's not another one coming. This is the arm of the Lord. And although we might want someone that's easy to believe in, we might want somebody that never says anything that embarrasses us. We may want somebody who any page of the Bible you turn to, you could read it in modern society and everyone would go, woohoo, love that guy. That's not what we have. What you have is an obedient Lord who reaches out to you so that his obedience will overwhelm your disobedience and all the disobedience in the world. And all I'm saying to you is if you had taken a look at the arm of God and done what every other person who ever looked at it did, which was to say, no thanks. I'm just simply saying, take another look. The love that reached down into this world the faith to entrust himself to God, the willingness to obey, that's what you want. And when you grab hold of that hand, more power than you're ever going to be able to understand or imagine is going to lift you out of that pit and set you on solid ground and give you eternal life. Second thing to think about, if you are a Christian, Pay attention to the example of Jesus. What God desires are hands and feet and arms that will obey. That's what he needs. 
We may think, oh, he needs theological education. Oh, he needs people with a fantastic prayer life. He needs people who are really good at sharing the gospel. He needs people who are beautiful and attractive and successful. He needs people who have a clean past and don't have it. That is not what he needs. What he needs is who will do what the brain tells it to do and when you hit the cold water, won't recoil. You and I have the opportunity to be an arm of the Lord, not in the exact same way that Jesus was, but like Jesus. God has lots of people in our life that he wants to reach out to. This massive, loving, powerful God wants to reach into the lives of people around us and offer them a hand to get them out of where they are. And if you think, well, the most important qualities are education or personality or background or healthy families or whatever those things, please hear the example of Jesus. The single most powerful qualifying thing is are you willing to obey? And I don't care what your personality is like. I don't care what your educational background is like. I don't care what kind of dysfunction has been in your life or is in your life currently. If you say to the Lord, here I am, send me. If you're willing to say, when it doesn't go well because it's cold, putting your hand in that water. Not my will, but yours be done. Then you too will be an arm of the Lord. And through you, God can extend his incomparably great power to all around you. Now, lots of people are going to do to you the same thing they did to Jesus, which is, you're the arm of the Lord. You're the one God saved to come, sent to come help me? You don't have any education. You're not good at speaking. You don't have a winsome personality. You're poor. You don't have a good job. Your life's a mess. They said that about Jesus. But if you're willing to obey, God will use you to do great and mighty things that you haven't even begun to see. Third thing for you to consider. Isaiah 52 verse 13 says, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. What happened on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago was not Jesus's triumphal entry. It was just a very, very tiny glimpse of Jesus's triumphal entry. And what God says to us is because this Jesus who being in very nature God, meaning that his nature is he's God, did not consider his equality with God the Father something to be held on to tenaciously, but instead made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was willing to let God plunge him into hell and into death to raise us out. Because Jesus was willing to do this, God has given this Jesus a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on earth in heaven and under the earth, that this Jesus Christ is Lord Amen. to the glory of God. His triumphal entry is still coming, and every eye, every knee, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And there is nothing that George Lucas, ticker tape sports parade, the President of the United States, there is nothing that anyone has ever seen that will look anything like that. 
And so while we wait for Jesus' triumphal entry to this earth, we know more than they did 2,000 years ago. And so we offer him as best we can the praise that is due his name. No one has ever done what he did for us. No one was ever willing to suffer what he suffered for us. And this week, while the rest of the world runs sort of interest stories on websites or other things about Jesus or religion or Christianity, you and I are going to gather together and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. If God hadn't reached out to us in Jesus, we would have been lost forever. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.